But is that how we should be thinking about relationships? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. In the past few years, it's become very popular to talk about mental health and protecting your mental health, and especially in relationship to toxic relationships. And a lot of this has to do with an excuse so that people can say, well, I need to cut off my parents because they're, they do so much damage to me and they, they make me so uncomfortable. Or even getting divorced because you say, my relationship with my spouse is toxic. But but is that how Christians should be thinking about relationships? I think when we start talking about this subject, one of the things, and we cover this in a lot of different episodes, is language really matters. And the way people think about things and the way people talk about things, it really shapes it shapes the way their mind works. It shapes the way we think about things. And sometimes when you notice something, a shift in language, it shows a shift in thinking and it shows a way that people have found a useful way of thinking about things. And so when you see relationships being called toxic – it kind of reminds me of, I think, of even like alcoholism and things like that, where you're dealing with things that are sin in the world. And there really are sins in relationships. There really are sins, and there are relationships that are full of sin. And there are relationships that are difficult, and there are relationships that have specific challenges. But in the end, it's easier to kind of, by labeling them, by calling them by a certain name, by saying a word like toxic, by, by reducing all the complexity down to just and creating a, a definitive, I'm going to summarize it in this way, you can kind of take all that complexity and remove it and move away from it. And as Christians, I don't know that we really have the freedom and flexibility to take sin and just go, I'm going to treat it in this way or I'm going to cut off my relationship with this person because their sin has grown so much. We actually have to deal with the detail. I mean, and, and there's a, you know, if you look at things like the confession and where we talk about sin, there's a phrase that comes to mind. It's that particular sins must be repented of particularly. And I think that's a concept that's really been lost is the idea that you actually have to deal with sins at a finer level, at a more granular level than just saying you you sinned against me a lot. You actually have to deal with the, the details of the sin. When you compare toxic relationships to alcoholism, what you're, what you're trying to pull on there is people use the term alcoholism to describe a set of behaviors, but the way that that description of those behaviors ends up playing out is that, okay, it, it becomes this clinical thing it's an addiction and then and then all of a sudden we've moved away from talking about those particular behaviors the way that the bible talks about them but you know bible the, alcoholism is not a biblical concept and when you move away from the biblical descriptions of it then all of a sudden the way you s- start treating it or even thinking that this is a thing that needs to be treated instead of a sin that needs to be dealt with it really does affect how you're handling the the matter, the subject matter, by calling it something that's not a biblical category. And, and, to- and using the term toxic, you know, relationship or toxic person, you also end up people use that term for so many different things, and there's no like standard. I mean, that could be anyone from anywhere from you know this person has tried to murder me before, all the way down to this person has pointed out that I am sinning. You know, and depending on who you're talking to. That it could be anywhere in between. And I mean, some of those we can obviously, you know, say, no, it's not toxic just because someone has pointed out that you're doing wrong. But, you know, it could be just a relationship that's just difficult or one that, you know, you don't always get along with this person. Um, something that is relatively minor to some people would then be a toxic relationship, cut them off to others. And, and there's no, you know, it's not a biblical term. And it can have quite a range of meaning. And what it's doing is it's externalizing. Right. It's not 
I'm sinning in my response to that person. It's the relationship that has the problem. And that's a real big problem because then it's a, it can't be solved, right? It's, this is a toxic relationship. And so all of a sudden I don't have a responsibility there. I can just get rid of it because it's poisoning me. And that's not how relationships work. How relationships work is you are responding and you can either respond in sin or you can respond in righteousness. And when you make it about the relationship and says the relationship's poisoning you, it's it's the wrong way to look at it. The problem is your response. It's not the problem with the relationship. It's the problem with the one person's behavior and your response to that behavior or your behavior and their response. And all of a sudden it's taken and put it in this third place that it's this toxic relationship that's outside of the behavior of the two people. And there is no such thing. It's the behavior of the two people that is either sin or righteousness. And, you know, and I mean, sometimes the people are called toxic as well. But, you know, the whole concept is also ignoring the idea of total depravity and the idea that we all have sin. So, you know, any deep, close relationship you have with someone, you will both be sinning against each other. Now, there's a lot of different levels of, of how that how far you're sinning against each other, but just the fact that, you know, someone has hurt you or sinned against you in a relationship, um, you could say, well, therefore it's toxic. Well, everyone is toxic to some level. If, if that's what we're calling toxic, just, you know, sinning against people. Um, and so, but the issue is, you know, how do you deal with that sin and, you know, what, what, what type of sin is it as well? And I do think it's important to recognize that, I mean, Jesus Christ had to deal with some really bad people. I mean, that's very clear when you read the gospels and he never said, these people are toxic, they should be cut off. This is a toxic relationship, it should be cut off. It's just not, that is not the biblical response. That's not the behavior. And I think it has very much a wrong view that goes, this person's sin causes me to sin, and it's not my sin that caused me to sin. If that's true, then Christ couldn't be sinless because he had toxic relationships by the modern definition, and his response was not to sin or that we have no Savior. I mean, it's very specifically when you think about things like his trial. His, I mean, when the situation that he goes through, there's an argument where you have to go. Other people, if other people can cause you to sin, like you're saying, I mean, right? Because like, he had to, and, and you people go, well, that's not really, a, really a relationship. That really was a relationship. This was the people of Israel, the people who came and were saying crucify him, were people that had followed him, that had heard his teaching, the people who went away who testified against him, were people who had been around him. And he's sitting there, and they're putting him in this situation, and he's being bombarded with these things, and he's being having to confront these things. And if that can make you sin, if that has the power to make you sin, and you really have to, to really get down and understand that everything that Christ went through, if that is what can make you sin— you have a real problem theologically. And, you know, there, there are places, I think we're going to talk more about this later, where, you know, so, uh, being around someone is bad for you because their sins and your sins work well together and create more sin. Right. But, you know, the way to deal with that isn't to just throw around toxic. It's to take responsibility for your own failings and your own weaknesses as, you know, what they are, which is, you know, character issues. And, you know, not not to deny that, that other people have their own issues, their own sins as well. But to just label it toxic, it becomes easy to just kind of, you know, it's, it's not something that any, you know, that you are at any fault for, but it's, it's just a toxic. I just can't deal with it. One of the verses that comes to mind is First Peter 2, 21 through 24. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And the whole point there is that, yeah, he suffered. Yes, he was reviled. Yes, he had all these toxic relationships, so to speak, like you were talking about at the trial. But his response wasn't to sin. His response wasn't to say, well, I'm just going to pretend like they're not the high priests. His response was to not revile in return. His response was to not sin. And we're supposed to follow in his steps. And when as soon as you say, well, there's a toxic relationship, so I should just cut that off. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the steps that Jesus walked in. You can't say I'm following in his steps. What you're saying is I'm trying to avoid suffering. And Christ wasn't trying to avoid suffering. He wasn't saying that people aren't difficult. He wasn't saying that there's not sin in the world. He's saying you have to deal with it, but you don't have to sin in response. I think and I do think that idea about suffering is really at the core here because when you when you approach this, I mean, some of the language around some of the self help self help kind of idea ideology is you have no obligation to suffer. You have no obligation ever to suffer. And if you're not a Christian, that's still not completely true. Everybody knows that's not true. Because you have their relationships. A parent has an obligation to suffer for their child. That's part of what being a parent is, is that you suffer for your child. Your child is this is this immature being that has to be taken care of, and I'm sorry that requires you to. But if you're specifically a Christian, there is an aspect where you're called to suffer. And it does not mean that you have to throw yourself headlong into any situation that increases your pain. It is not a mindless search for pain or suffering, but it does mean that God calls his people to be in situations where he is glorified by their suffering because by the Holy Spirit he allows them to endure it with grace and to and to glorify him by their response to it. And I think it's just important to recognize that this whole idea that you should avoid suffering and that you have to eliminate suffering, I mean, that's contrary to the experience of the world. As you get older, you will suffer. You can do everything right. You can and age is associated with suffering. I mean, if you watch, it gets harder to get out of bed in the morning. Your knees hurt. Everything hurts. Chairs that it, used to be comfortable stop being comfortable. Right. You know? and, and aging has suffering embedded in it that you cannot avoid. So to pretend like this world is about avoiding all suffering, that's clearly contrary to the testimony of the world. That's living in fantasy. To pretend like it. And when you teach somebody when they're 20 that they should never have to suffer, they should never have to deal with difficult people, they should never have to be unhappy, well, you're setting them up to a lifetime of failure because that's not the real world. That's a fantasy land. And really misery, greater misery. Right, because because all of a sudden, in addition to having to deal with the suffering, now they have to deal with being upset that they're suffering when they shouldn't have to suffer and their self-righteousness makes them suffer more. And all they do is harm themselves. This whole idea of mental health that they're pushing where you're, like you're saying, where they're saying everything should just be, every the world should conform to you, which is what the real idea of being, you know, having good mental health means that you get the whole world to conform to you. Well, that's not good mental health, but that's what they're pushing. And it's just a total lie. It's a total fabrication. It's just not how the world works. In these parent-child relationships where one's cutting the other off, you know, I I think like 99% of the time it's the children cutting off the parents because the parents to raise the children had to endure many years of suffering. And so they're, you know, and if they didn't, they would probably, they might, you know, go to jail or whatever. You know, they can't just abandon their kids when they're two and they're screaming. So, you know, as, and as, you know, their children are adults, even if they're still causing them suffering, 
I think they tend to be a lot more tolerant of it because they've been trained in, you know, by by the the cycle of having children that suffering is involved in this relationship. And biblically, the parent has a lot more right to cut off the child than the child ever has to cut off the parent. Because the reality, there's even scripture that says that you should put the child to death if they won't listen to you, right? You should take them in front of the elders of their city. And so when you look at the law, the law is very biased one way, which is children can't cut off their parents, but there is a place for a parent to cut off their child. When Peter writes, Peter writes and basically goes, hey, you're supposed to suffer. That This is Christ came and he suffered, and therefore you should expect there to be suffering. And when you suffer, it's not a curse, it's a blessing. Like in First Peter 2, 18 through 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. To what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. It's not, if you suffer, you know, because you did good, you should just do whatever you can to escape it. It says pretty much the opposite, not that you're supposed to seek out suffering like you said before, but when you do good, when you do what's right and you suffer for it, this is commendable before God. God is not saying this is something to escape from. And and part of what we're really pushing on here, part of what, if you read this verse, if you read God's word, if you read what scripture says about what it means to be a Christian, because you need to understand that the world you live in, you have heard a lot of really wrong, false thinking about how your life should be, what you are owed, what you owe yourself, and what you should seek. There's just a lot of things you've been told that are not true, and you actually have to start off going, wait a minute, I need to change the way I think. Because if you approach the world the way the world tells you you should, you, you, can't, you can't behave the way God tells you. I mean, it's, it is completely at odds with God's Word. And recognize that you're, that's a big ask. You're not saying that this is a light thing. Oh, just change the way you think about it because everything that you've been told about the way that you think are ways that really appeal to you. Right. Somebody's telling you you need to really take care of your mental health. You need to have your own self-care days. I mean, these kinds of things are really appealing to your self-centeredness. Specifically, that's the kind of sin that, that a lot of this feeds into is is your own selfishness. And what we're asking is put that on the chopping block, you know, put all that in play and say, hey, maybe this isn't right. What does the Bible actually have to say about all of these attitudes that I've taken for granted, I've absorbed from the culture? This is just the way that, that people appeal to me right now to get my attention. And, you know, this is where our society has gone, which when we look at some of the the side things like the rise of sodomy, like this transvestite movement and all these things, we can look at that and say, what does that have to do with this subject? But the reality is, is they're both manifestations of the same sin. And the same sin is going, I should get what I want. I should get what's pleasing to me. I should get what's comfortable for me. Nobody should be able to tell me what to do. Nobody should do anything that makes me uncomfortable. If I want to wear a dress, nobody should look at me and go, why is that fool wearing a dress? And that's just so contrary to the way the world is. And so these are, they're in the same level, right? The one is further, but they are in the same level, which is 
Nobody should be able to do anything that causes me to do something different than what I want to do. I think it's also part of this, the whole victim chic that we're dealing sure. with right now that just, you know, you can think about all the ways that the system is out to get you or your class or, or whatever. And this is just a very personal way of expressing that of, oh, I'm a victim in this relationship. And I do think it's a way for where you have a society that's that's exalting things, these things and embracing it. It's a way for the common person to do it. Most people don't want to sleep. No, most men don't want to sleep with another man to prove that you can do whatever you please. You don't want to walk around in society wearing a dress. But now all of a sudden you can do the same thing in a way that's very safe, doesn't really have that much risk. All you're doing is saying this person is is just they're bad for me. They hurt me. So therefore I should get rid of them. That's a toxic relationship. This, And so it's a cheap form of those other things. I mean, one of the things cheap I think meaning that it has less personal impact on you. And one of the th- ways I think that it's very related, when you think about sins, I mean, when you look at people who are transsexual or people who are homosexual, they have to – very often they edit the past. When you look and they say, I've always felt different in certain ways or I've always been – there's a truth that, no, they didn't – they didn't always know they were a woman. They didn't always know they were a man trapped in a woman's body. That's not actually true. But there's this part of it People where— People don't remember things very well at all. That's important We to remember things very supportive of what we want to remember. And, and I mean, and people need to be able to be honest with themselves. I mean, have you ever looked at yourself and been tempted to, to, remember, to remember your childhood differently when you're angry? To remember—I mean, there are things you can do. You can, you can look back and you can turn something that really wasn't that horrible into something that was terrible. And this, and so, and we think these things—they're very specific to certain types of sins. But it, deception and self-deception is a huge part of all sins. And so, there's this part where you say, like the victim chic. It's not like you don't have to sit there, and you—you you could literally be a person who has turned your life into a scenario where you have made yourself a victim your whole life because you've thought about your life from the wrong perspective. Because you've because your sins have taken you down a path. And that is not impossible. And it doesn't mean everybody, there are people who've had a very bad life. There are people, they've endured some very difficult things. You'll also find some who've endured worse things than you who don't think about it in the same way as you. And you just need to understand that it's much more subjective than we want to make it. It's much more that our sin is wrapped up in these things and our response to it, and they change who we are, and everything ripples from it. I think pointing out that it's subjective is really important because that's very central to this, is that you get caught up in your own perspective on how things work and your and your perspective becomes primary as opposed to saying, no, what are the actual behaviors? What does God say about those behaviors? And what does God say to do about those behaviors? Or for that matter, what do people outside of me and this person's relationship say about what's going on? What does somebody who's not invested in it like us say? None of that matters when you're tunnel vision in a toxic relationship, using the terminology that we've been talking about here. I do think it's important to recognize that the therapists do exactly that. Mm, Only yeah. the way they do it is they hear a story and they help you put the worst spin on it so that it makes it a lot worse than it actually was. Sure. And I mean, and you know, as you were saying this, it just struck me the example of the first time that Trump got impeached. You could go. He called... Ukraine and said, hey, we have some reason to believe somebody took a bribe. Can you help us find information? Or you can take it. 
He called Ukraine to say, I want to destroy my political opponent that by can you find any information, make it up if you have to, to get a bribe so that we can shut down Biden. Right. And both of those could be used to describe exactly the same situation. And the one ends in impeachment. and The other does not. Let's be serious. And that's the same thing therapists are doing every day with individuals where they'll come and they'll hear something. And, well, let's be serious. If you want to keep them coming to therapy, you got to say this was really bad because otherwise if you just go suck it up and what's, what's your problem, you just lost a client. And so all these people that want to do therapy, they're, they're intentionally doing it to make it worse because and to spin it so it's on the worst side. So I think that's one of the reasons that you get this rise because you get this rise at the same time that you have all these Hollywood stars going, how can you not be in therapy? Everybody needs to be in therapy. Well, it's very tied to the toxic relationship stuff because all of a sudden, if you're going to be in therapy, it's got to be because there was a problem. So what was a minor thing, all of a sudden, you know, you're making mountains out of molehills. I mean, it's just, you kind of have the... You know, the trauma term come in, you know, into a lot of these discussions where, you know, it's making it sound like, you know, you had a, you know, something, you know, injured your body in a way that has ongoing consequences. But now it's just something in your past. Someone did something wrong to you. Um, and, of you know, of course, you can't be sinned against in ways to give you consequences, but it is taking away a lot of your responsibility to, you know, react r- appropriately when someone sinned against you in the past. And it can make things that you know, we're actually, you know, and and make there be ongoing things, results from it when there didn't actually need to be. I mean, when you want to talk about the concept of being a victim, I think it's important to actually look at that because Christianity actually uses the term. We actually, the, the when you look in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word that is translated that means victim is sacrifice. I mean, it can mean slaughter and it means victim. And when you look at how Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was a victim. Jesus Christ does not have a victim complex. Jesus Christ says, I laid down my life. Jesus Christ says, I was a victim. But he also, and it's really important, he literally frames what he did to make it clear what the purpose of it was. And there's a part of it where Christianity does come with a mindset. You can look at your life of these things being inflicted upon you, or you can look at yourself as laying down your life. And again, this does not mean some ridiculous, I go and look for ways to be hurt. But it does mean that when God ordains that you be hurt, your attitude towards that is defined by Christianity or it's not. And that it's not like this is a biased thing. It's not like this is something that you can say, well, I have a different perspective on it. No, it's baked into the language. It's baked into the meaning. Jesus Christ was a sacrifice. We're called to be living sacrifices. And you can say those are living victims. And you need to think about what that means. It is not something that you get to say, well, pass. I'm going to pass on that. You have to actually think about how to how to approach it with your life. And you, what you do is you produce a people that will never be martyrs if what you say is, if you have a toxic relationship, you need to protect your mental health. And the reality is God says, I've always had martyrs. I've always, always had people that suffer wrongfully. This is commendable before God. This is Jeremiah gets thrown into a well. Everybody wants to kill Moses, right? I mean, this is this is normal and we go no this is terrible and god goes no this is this is what's commendable before me is where you walk in righteousness when people are sinning against you and it's not just commendable before god it's this is what should be the normal christian yes the 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 life of a christian is this 
For example, Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, I I think this is just the giant brick wall that any... All of the discussion about mental health comes to a crash on this verse. Mm-hmm. When this verse says, again, like Charles is saying, it's not like you're running, looking out, looking for pain. But he's also saying, when you wake up in the morning, pick up your cross, you're going to have labor. You're, and it's going to be labor that's suffering. And it's going and to— And the cross was and it's, designed to be as painful as to, possible, And right? it's going to be like death, he's even saying. And like, look, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And if you try and save your life, you're going to lose it. And it's, that's just—and, and, you know, I mean, there's paradoxes in a sense involved with this and about how you think about things. But, but what's clear is this isn't a verse that you can go to and say, hmm, I really got to work on my self-care. I've really got to protect my, you know, my Christ died. So I'd have my best life now. Right. And I think part of it is, is when you, th- one of the issues with self care and with protecting your mental health is because of the approach, it causes you to fixate on something that it causes you to fixate on your mental health. And so it creates this loop in your head. Like this situation's bad. That's going to damage my mental health. But if I don't get out of the situation, it's going to harm my mental health. And it's like, because in the end, because what you're, and there's just part of it where, I mean, it's kind of like dealing with a bad situation. If you actually learn to deal with the bad situation, it's like when you're a kid and you walk on rocks barefooted. If you try to avoid walking on rocks barefooted, rocks are always a horrible thing. If you realize you were going to have to walk on rocks barefooted sometimes, you did it a little bit and your foot got, feet got calloused and you actually got to the point where you didn't notice the rocks anymore. You didn't even notice the difficulty. It stopped even being a difficulty. But if you were trying to preserve the tenderness of your feet, if your whole focus was wrapped around the fact that my feet need to be soft and my feet need to be tender, then you're going to be miserable if you have to keep doing things that hurt your feet. And I'm not saying your goal is to be, you're saying you're supposed to be calloused. I'm not even saying that, but I'm saying that when God sends you through things, he teaches you how to deal with things. There's a point where the person who's horrible to you, you don't get to the point where you treat them with complete indifference, but you do get to the point where you go, this is what they are. They're a sinner who sins and they sin against me, and I'm not going to like grab their barbs and stab them into me. I'm not going to cut myself deeper with them. I'm going to learn to not let them hurt me as much. I'm going to learn to not let these things be as painful, and it changes your perspective. But if your perspective is on health, you never get there. If your perspective is I need to serve my idol, which is myself, in the end, there's no end of service to that idol. Right. There is no end. It's, it's That's the a right way service to, to the idol that is, it is no end and it just gets harder and harder. And all of a sudden you, you, you protect yourself against one thing. And then that means, oh no, now I have something less, less se- severe that I need to, there's no end to serving that idol. None. But if you say I'm a servant of the living God. And the fact that I get hurt serving him, it's kind of like, well, that's that's what it means to be a servant. You know, get over it. Suck it up. It's painful to do things. Or a soldier. Or a soldier, right, to use the language that's, that's used in Second Timothy, the idea of us being a soldier. And so this is what we're called to do 
And yet we want to pretend like we're called to have everything peaceful and comfortable instead of, I mean, soldiers, let's be serious. They do not have a comfortable life. And what they have to do is they have to run a lot and they have to march a lot and they do. And all that is to harden them up so that they don't feel pain when they have to run. Right. So they don't go, I'm not going to fight because I might have to run that two miles. Instead, (laughs) they were hardened up and we go, we should be soft instead of we should be hard. That's because instead of serving God, so many people in the church and so many people in our society, they want to serve themselves as an idol and say, my mental health, my my idol, I cannot cause that to be defiled in any way, which is really what the mental health argument is about. And, you know, uh, the world's you know, mantra is love yourself first. And there's a lot of verses in Scripture that would contradict that. Uh, like like Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So you need to be looking out for other people and not, not just for yourself and putting others ahead of yourself. You know, it's basic, basic stuff, but it's stuff that a lot of, you know, a lot of the worldly philosophies contradict. And when I hear about toxic relationships, most of it is this person in dealing with me was self-centered. They were just focused on themselves. You know, my mother, when she was raising me, she just gave me something to eat to get out of the way so that she could go date her boyfriend or whatever. They come up with all kinds of things. And they think the response to their mother's self-centeredness and her sin of self-centeredness is to now be self-centered. Sorry, your sin does not like somehow make it so that her sin goes away or her sin can be ignored. All you're doing is sinning against her in the same way she sinned against you. That's that's not how you fix the problem. And I think a lot of the mental health stuff comes down to that is one person was self-centered. So now my response is I get to be self-centered back because their self-centeredness was offensive. But mine is is good because it's protecting my mental health. I mean, it's interesting when you look at people who've suffered and who've gone through really difficult things and had the right response to it. I remember reading like Alexander Solzhenitsyn when he talked about he was in a prison camp and the guards would take away their food and would would take things away from them. And I remember his he remembered, he said, he goes, it was very much like when I was young and I would have a baby and I would tease a baby with things because the baby couldn't, the baby didn't, I had power over the baby and I would tease the baby. And his literal response was to look and go, the guards aren't doing anything fundamentally different than what I've done when I've had power. And you know what I mean? It was this, and it was his understanding that his sin and the guard's sin really weren't that different. And even though there's a part where you look at it and go, yes, that is different. I'm even willing to agree with you. Yes, that is different in the way, but he understood. Different in degree, but not in kind. Different in the right. And he was even looking at it going, if I had power over someone else in a certain circumstance, there have been times where I would have used it to abuse them and I wouldn't have thought of it. And he, he actually understood himself, and he wasn't willing to condemn those around him who sinned because he recognized that they both had sin. And I mean, it's, and it's a really difficult thing to do, but you're not going to get there if your attitude is, I shouldn't be sinned against. I shouldn't have to endure being sinned against. That's just not, that's just not true, even for non-Christians. So, I mean, some other ways to, to deal with it. One is when somebody's in a relationship is not treating you as you think you should be treated. I think the first thing to do is make sure that you don't like respond in kind, that you don't go, well, they're self-centered. They're just thinking about themselves. So I'm just going to think about myself rather than esteeming them and saying, okay, so they have this sin, they have this problem and maybe they're an unbeliever and that you should be, 
you know, testifying that they need Jesus Christ or whatever the situation is, but instead of responding by saying, I'm going to sin against them in the way they're sinning against me. So that's the first thing to always watch out for. Another thing that I would, you know, when, when Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, here's how to avoid the sin that so easily ensnares us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In that situation, when somebody's abusing you, when somebody's treating you sinfully, in a way that they shouldn't be treating you. The point is, don't look towards them. Instead, look towards Christ and say, what would Christ have me to do here? What is obedience to God here so that we don't just turn around when we're sinned against in sin, which is the natural response. That's the, that's the response of the sons of Adam. But the sons of Christ say, I'm going to keep my eyes on Christ and say, what should I do here in the sight of God? Because I'm not supposed to become a servant of that person who's mistreating me. I'm supposed to stay a servant of Christ. And if you want to deal with toxic relationships, that's what you have to do is you have to keep your focus on Christ rather than getting your focus on the person who's potentially mistreating you and maybe very legitimately mistreating you. It doesn't matter. You need to keep your eyes on Christ. And I would say one of the things related to keeping your eyes on Christ is there's a part of it where you need to understand what's been forgiven you. And and there's so in Matthew eighteen there's a verse in verse Matthew eighteen, twenty one to twenty two. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. And right after this he tells the story of a person who owed a huge amount, the person who owes like ten thousand talents, and he comes before the king and the king forgives him the debt that he that he owes and this person goes out and finds someone who owes him a, a minuscule sum and threatens to throw them into debtor's prison if they don't pay it and when the king hears of it he calls him back says no I've just, I'm not forgiving you I'm throwing you into the tormentors until you've paid every last penny and it ends by saying so shall God so shall my father do to you who do not forgive out of you know, genuinely out of your heart your brother when he trespasses against you and there's this part where, I mean, you know, it's just if you have your eyes on Christ and you understand what you've been forgiven. I mean, one of the things I tell my children is if you want to deal with anger in your life, one of the easiest ways to deal with anger is in that moment if you can remind yourself of all the things that God has forgiven. Because your anger is just welling up inside of you and you can't – I'm being treated in this way and I shouldn't be treated in this way and the situation is ridiculous. And here you go, oh, it's not ridiculous at all. <laughs> This isn't even remotely ridiculous. I mean, there's this part of it where if you're not willing to forgive your brother, I mean, God's very clear. I will cast you into hell. You're not a Christian. You are not, you're not his. And so, I mean, this is just, these are not trivial things. These are things about whether you truly are in Christ. And so you, it's not a, it's not a benign thing how you think about your sin and the sin of others. It's not something that you can just go, I'm going to figure out how to deal with this. Scripture is just really clear. Either you forgive your brother when they trespass against you, or you're not a Christian. And it's really, and the Christian response is when somebody sins against you is, yes, it's proper to rebuke them for their sin and everything else. But really, Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, what you have to do is pull the plank out of your own eye before you pull the speck out of your neighbor's eye. 
And so when somebody is sinning against you, the first thing that you should be thinking of is, wow, they're really mistreating me. Who have I mistreated like this? Who have I done the same thing for? And as soon as you start thinking that way, and maybe you go, I've never done it in the same degree, but you can always go, I did it to some degree. I've done it sometime. And then all of a sudden you have sympathy with the person who's abusing you because you go, you know what? He's a lot worse than I was, but I'm not that different. And then all of a sudden it's much easier to deal with the person as a person and not be like, who do you think you are to treat me that way? Which is what happens so often. And so trying to get it so that you're looking at their sin and going, I'm a sinner like them. Neither of us are Christ. We shouldn't be surprised that both of us sin. And yes, I should help him deal with his sin, but I shouldn't go, ooh, how can he sin against me? Because I've sinned the same way against others. And of course, you know, there are levels of it too. You know, you know, we're we're talking about we're not we're not talking here about like, you know, sexual abuse or things like that. Um, where you just say, well, you know, we're all sinners, you know, what can I do? You know, not, nothing, you know, I just have to, you know, keep forgiving them. You know, there are, there are, there are levels that it gets to where there are lines that are crossed that are different, but that's not normally what people are talking about in toxic relationships. And it is important to note when you talk about that, that the person who molested their daughter, the daughter should be going, yeah, have I sinned in the same way? And she should also call the police, right? I mean, it's not saying that there aren't authorities that should deal with it. There are authorities that should deal with it. And they should punish him. And it doesn't mean that she goes back and have a relationship. But it does mean that she can have more recognition that, wait, this guy's a sinner and I'm also a sinner. I mean, one of the things that sin fundamentally does is it separates us in the sense that it causes us, like you're talking about, where you have to actually work to recognize that there's a similarity between you and someone else. And sin actually, the nature of sin is that it causes this separation between us. It causes us to look at the other person and pretend like we can't understand them, pretend like we can't understand why they would behave the way they're behaving. And there is real work that's required to actually go, wait a minute. Like, you know, I, I, I can actually understand this. Or I can even realize that what they're doing may not even be that big of a sin at all. There are times where we just don't like the fact that they're they're behaving the way that they are. I mean, right. I mean, it's, it's very easy to not like a reasonable behavior from someone else. And we need to constantly be working to put to death hypocrisy because that's what it really comes to, right? When you go, how could they do that when you would do the same thing is you're really a hypocrite. Right. And we just need to recognize that and be looking for hypocrisy in ourselves because it's so easy to have it. It's so natural to have it. And it's often the things that upset that upset us the most the things that we do. If the if the central sin in on your part in the middle of this quote unquote toxic relationship is some kind of selfishness, some kind of self centeredness, then really good antidotes to that particular sin are an attitude of forgiveness and an attitude of humility, like we've been talking about. And keeping your eyes on Christ. Keeping well, I mean that's how you get right. an attitude of forgiveness. That's how you get an attitude of humility is say, Jesus forgives. Jesus is humble. That's that's where those come from. Those are the particular ways you want to imitate Christ, if you right. will. But you talked about the you talked about recognizing the other person as a person. It's part of this exercise of saying, Well, how how do I have sins that are like those sins? You're really pushing against the zeitgeist on that because in 
without going too much of a rabbit trail on this, this is very much where our culture w- would like you to other people using the, the phrases. Mm-hmm. It's, and this is the way that you're being catechized by the movies. This is the way you're being catechized by the news. All the violence that was happening during the riots, during the George Floyd summer, all of this was just part of that. Make it really easy to think of somebody as less than a person or a whole group of people as less than human. And don't think that you can live in a culture like that where that kind of toxicity mm-hmm. in the culture is not affecting your worldview. And then you go back and you start treating other people around you by the ways that the culture's been training you to treat them. I mean, I think you use, you use the phrase toxicity and you kind of use it as a joke. I mean, it's fair saying there's a toxic nature to sin. And I don't think we're denying that there's a toxic, there's a poisonous nature to sin. If you're talking about it being poisonous, there is a poisonous nature to sin. But what we've kind of tried to push at throughout this is it's not enough to just go, oh, there's something poisonous here. Is You have to actually deal with the poison. You have to actually deal with the specific aspect. You, you don't just, you can't just go, there's poison. Because guess what? The world is full of poisonous things. The world is full of things that have a toxic nature to them. Right. I so think, if you're thinking about like radiation, well, there's radiation everywhere on earth. <laughs> Doesn't mean that there's some radiation that won't kill you, but the fact that this thing has radiation doesn't mean you have to flee from it. I do think we have to be careful because it can be that we act like that toxin has to be ingested and it doesn't. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's, we can have this, those person can teach, can be trying to give us poison, but it's only poison to us if we eat it. It's not poison unless you actually consume it. And I don't mean that you don't take the abuse. You take the abuse. It says, you know, if you're beaten and it's not because of your own faults, it's because you did good, then it's commendable before God. And we take it and we go, that's poison. And God says, it's not poison. That's actually good. That's actually a blessing. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when they lie about you, when they persecute you, it's poison that they're trying to feed you. And Christ is saying, but if you don't eat it, it's a blessing and it's not a curse. And we want to take it and say that that relationship and what they're saying is toxic. It's not. It's how you respond to it that determines whether it's toxic or not. If you respond to it by following God, by obeying God, by by speaking truth to people who don't want to hear truth, God says, yeah, they'll lie about you. Yes, they'll, they'll persecute you. Yes, they'll beat you. Yes, they'll do all these things. But it's not a curse. It's a blessing. It's not a toxin. And I mean, it's, when you look, I don't know if we have the verse in here, but I mean, there's a part of, I said earlier, if you're walking barefoot and your feet hurt, your feet will get, you know, your feet, you can also put on shoes. I mean, there's this part of it where scripture talks about put on the armor, the put on the whole armor of God, and you'd use this to resist the fiery darts of the devil. And that's about as close, you know, I mean, there's this right. part of it where, yes, someone might be flinging fiery darts at you. And what God is saying is, I've given you a means to withstand those fiery darts. I've given you a means so that those fiery darts will not hurt you. They will not touch your skin. They, Like you're saying, and he's saying, you will be blessed with the fact that you stood in that day and dealt with those things and not fought them with a physical sword, but fought them with the sword of truth. 
that you come back to them with the sword of truth, with grace, with peace, with love, with with kindness. With righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. And so, I mean, all these things, I mean, these are all what you're saying here. And I think it's, again, that is not what people are going to tell you you're supposed to do. That is not what they're going to tell you. But this is what Scripture says. And the mindset has to be that when they tell you that, that they are trying to steal blessings from you. Because that's what God says. And that's what faith requires. Because you will always, in churches, you find these situations where people are going, oh, you can't accept that from him. You need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this. And that's such deception. Because God is saying, this is where blessing is. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. He's not saying that rejoice and have good mental health because you didn't you didn't have to suffer. He's saying this is where real joy is. This is where the real promises are. This is how faith really works itself out because you trust that your rewards will be great in heaven. So you take the suffering now and you do what's righteous in the midst of the suffering. And this is a part of it where I think we also need to realize that people who are promoting this wrong thinking – They've been hurt. they've been affected by sin, and in a sense, like Dick, you're talking about the therapist gives you a way to continue to think these thoughts. They give you a, they give you an excuse to think these thoughts. Very often, that's the same thing that others are doing. I mean, and usually, to be fair to the therapist, that therapist has usually had another therapist do exactly the same thing to them. Sure. And so they're they're drinking the Kool Aid. They usually drink right. their own Kool Aid that they're serving. And that's kind of what I'm they like. A, you know, they were in a toxic relationship with their, <laughs> with their the previous Kool-Aid, therapy. The Kool Aid was toxic, though. <laughs> Just, exactly. Right. If you well, drink so it, is, it's so is a lot of therapy. It's pretty toxic. <laughs> I mean, and if you drink what an if you consume what an evil person is saying to you, it will affect you negatively. If that's what you do with it, it will affect you negatively. But, I mean, it's sort of like the person at, you know, the woman at work, her marriage is falling apart. She starts going to couples therapy. She wants all of her friends to go to couples therapy. You should all go to couples therapy. Couples therapy is great. You should go to couples therapy. There's this part of it where, I mean, her marriage is disintegrating, and she wants everybody else to be in therapy because, you know what I mean? And She's sure their marriages must be disintegrating, and, too, and so that she feels. Of, right. Somebody has a horrible relationship with their parents, and they want to cut them off, and they hear somebody else go, I had a fight with my mother, and they go, you should cut your mother off. I'm getting ready to cut my mother off. You know what I mean? And we just forget that these things, they they, they travel in this way. And this is a bit off on the tangent that, that Jonathan went off before. But, I mean, <laughs> what they're doing is they're othering their husband, to use that term. And so then they want to join with other wives and get other wives to other their husbands because they hate the idea of, of being separated. And so they want to join as they work to separate other people. And right. that is so common. It's, they don't want to be separated alone. Right. It's, it's the classic rebel in high school, right? Is there's a group of rebels. It's not a single rebel. That The rebel is trying to get other people to join with him. So he has a group of re- rebels because he wants to be part of a group as he tries to separate from the group. I'm doing my own thing. Come do it with me. <laughs> exactly. And that's classic. And that's how people, that's how people work. And another thing you do is, is you, you pray for people that, that, that treat you badly. Matthew five forty three through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And there's a part of it where you pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And and understand praying for them is, I mean, there's a part of it where when we talked before about if you really pray for someone, 
not just Lord, I pray. You know, often when we pray, it's very easy just to say the words, I pray for so-and-so. And I'm not saying that's not praying for them, but there's deeper ways to pray for people, and it requires you to not other them in a sense. It requires right. you it requires you to think about them in a way where you begin to understand them. It requires you to consider them as a person, and that changes the nature of your thoughts toward them. The fact and to pray for them, you have to actually think about maybe where they're suffering, maybe where their difficulties are, maybe where they need to be ministered to. And that changes things. And it really is so Prayer is, again, so much of this is having the right perspective. It's that right. Scripture is about taking thoughts captive. It's about thinking about things in the right way. And that that's very much what this fight is over. If you look at the, the four verbs there, the, the four commands to, to love, to bless, to do good, to pray, if you practice those things, you know what it's really hard to do in that context? It's really hard to be self-centered. If you're sincere about doing those four things, self-centeredness just has no space anymore. It can't, it can't live and survive in that kind of a circumstance. I think as we, as we get down in this conversation, we've kind of made references to the fact that the world is full of suffering, that there's aspects of the world that are suffering. And a lot of times those things are driven by relationships we have. When you're talking about a toxic relationship, you forget that the relationship was, was kind of frequently predefined for you. Those relationships come with obligations. And of, and often what we're really trying to get away from when we want to say we want to cut someone off is we want to eliminate that obligation we have to them. We want to eliminate not just the connection we have to them, but the obligation we feel that we have and often that we rightfully have. And Scripture, like you talked earlier, I mean, when you look at the way Scripture's framed, it's, it's framed that you have these obligations even towards people that are just people in the world But there's others that it talks about very specifically. Deuteronomy 5.16 says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. And I mean, there's a a big part. I mean, I think we probably should do an episode at some point on just honoring your mother and your father because it's, it's something I think that's really been lost today. So much of where we're torn as a nation is because we don't honor our fathers and mothers and understand what that means, that you show honor to those who went before you. But there's a part of it where, I mean, we understand we have an obligation to our mother and our father. And there's one of these things when you consider them, when you consider what their life cost them, what your life to them, you know, but your life was a cost to them. It's very hard if you actually really consider that to, to, to be angry at them. And I mean, and understand people... Fathers and mothers can do horrible things. Most of the people in this room, I think, have been fairly blessed. We haven't had fathers and mothers do horrible things to us. But there's a part of it where even the person who has, I mean, most people, their fathers and mothers, they fed them. They grew up and they, you know, they they, they put clothes on their back. They they made sure they grew up. They, I mean, there's a th- you know, there's a part of it where I mean, you can look at imperfection and you can still go, there's still things that they did that I have an obligation to honor them for. And, and it even goes beyond that because you honor your father and your mother not just because of the things they did for you, but because God is your Imagine father you. and he put, you know, your physical father over you and your physical mother over you. And so you honor them because they are put there by God, you know, as a picture of God. So, you know, even if you 
you know, even if your father had nothing to do with you from the moment you're born till you're, you know, 50 years old, and then you find out that your father's alive, you still have a duty to honor him, even though he fulfilled none of his obligations to you. Now, what does it mean? What, what, what goes along with honoring your father? Um, and, you know, there, there are times when the father's sin can limit how much you're able to honor him. Like, if your father goes to prison, you're not going to have Thanksgiving dinner with him. I mean, there, you know, there's very basic ones that, you know, but, you know, the obligation doesn't go away completely. And the obligation, I mean, it's important to recognize that these are obligations that it doesn't mean that that obligation even, it has a limited amount that it flows out. In other words, if your your father is mean to your wife all the time, then you don't need to take your wife to see your father. But it doesn't mean that you have the right to dishonor your father. And a lot of times people go, I just need to cut it off because he's rude to my wife all the time. Well, maybe you visit him without your wife. Maybe you have lunch with him. And, so, and, and instead of going, no, I have a real positive obliga- obligation, but I also have a positive obligation to my wife. Right. And to protect my wife, if you're if you knew that your father was molesting your sister, you don't let him keep your daughter. All right. I mean, you know, but it doesn't and mean you call that, the police. And well, you hopefully called the police earlier. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm saying that if you knew that 20 years before he had, you still don't let him be with your daughter. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you don't have an obligation to say this is the man that God put in that role, even though he's flawed, even though he's very flawed. He's still a man that God put in that role. And just because you have that duty, it doesn't mean that you can't say the relationship has to change somewhat, the relationship with the rest of, with the ones that I have responsibility for. But you still have responsibility to, you know, Paul said, honor the civil magistrate. It was Nero. Right. Nero was a horrible civil magistrate. And Paul says, honor the civil magistrate. We can't imagine how horrible Nero was. It's really, right. I mean, it's almost impossible for us to even conceive of how horrible right, it is. Right, because we don't have any experience of just the hopelessness when Nero speaks and acts and, you know, just the amount of power he had and everything else. Right. This is just outside of our our understanding of the world. And so, right, so I think, I mean, it's, it's right. It, it is literally, it is, it is much worse than having a father who has molested someone. You know what I mean? I mean, there. I mean, that's what I mean. Nero, Nero killed. I mean, it's right. not that Nero killed Paul. Right. Like so, you know. That's. What, I mean, it's and like, it killed it many other saints and tortured that. them. And right. I mean, and so that's what I mean is, is I think it's when you, you really put it in perspective. And again, this doesn't mean that you have to go and you have to just tell you're the best father. You don't have to right. lie you to your have, father. You don't, you don't lie. Have, honoring him is not lying right. to him. Right. And that's really important. I think so often when we hear someone say something, our our reaction is to recoil and take it to an extreme and to the opposite and to think it's ridiculous. And there's a part of it where the question is, is are you coming to this and saying, how do I look at God's word and figure out what I should do? How do I look from God's word and figure out what it means to honor my father? And if I ask God how to help me to honor him, if I if I approach and ask God for wisdom, God says he gives he will give you wisdom. He says he gives liberally and he doesn't upbraid you for asking. Asking for wisdom a very good way to approach this. And it's very different than just going, the simple answer is, no, I've just already made my decision. I've, I've cut them off. And I think that when you look at it, right, and let's, you know, let's talk about an abusive father that was physically abusive. You don't necessarily need to be putting yourself back in the situation where, where he'll hit you, right? It's not that you just say, I'm going to accept his sin. I'm going to lo- cause, put myself in situations that cause his sin to 
for him easier to manifest as sin, but meet him at a restaurant instead of at his home. And guess what? He's not going to hit you at a restaurant most in 99% of the cases, or he'd immediately go to jail. And so, and if he does yeah. hit you, it's okay, okay to call it's okay. the police. It is okay. Yeah, it's I mean, okay to call the police. Absolutely. Right. And I, I only keep saying that just because people think there's this that those two things are incompatible, and they're not. You can you could have to show honor to someone and recognize that and call the police and testify at their trial, and they go to jail. I mean, those are not those are not against not their odds with one another. Right. And you know, and their sin does have have consequences. And it doesn't eliminate all your responsibilities to them. But like, you know, we mentioned the example before of, you know, if your father is cruel to your wife and you don't take your wife to dinner. It also means you're not going to your father's house for dinner every week. Right. Because that's not fulfilling your responsibilities to your wife. It doesn't mean you cut your father off. Maybe you go once a month. Maybe you go a couple times a year. But, it, you know, it, it his, his sin still Maybe you send notes instead of going. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it does mean, I mean, when you when you talk about dealing, you know, one of the things as a husband with your wife is there are people who have wives who are in different states of how they how they want to deal with certain things. And you can't say that your wife should never have to endure anything that's uncomfortable. Right. That cannot be your standard. And again, it doesn't mean that if your father's just verbally abusive that you have to take her there and let her be subjected to it. But there are sometimes where people want to go, I can't ever be in an uncomfortable situation. Sometimes they say things, and I don't like what they say. That's, that's – And there is a huge difference between – I mean, biblically, there's a huge difference between somebody – you know, we go to verbal abuse and all these other things where that's a big difference than beating somebody up. Right. And we've moved so far from beating somebody up in normal circumstances that we start to go that, that somebody yelling at people – should you yell at people? No. But if you're hearing it, Right, if your heart is in the right place, where you're actually following God, you're looking for towards God for your affirmation and not towards men, then so what if somebody yells at you? What's the big deal? And people want to make it to be this huge deal. And the reality is, if you're yelled at and it's not your fault, why does it matter? Why does it bother you? It shouldn't it's not like it's gonna damage your hearing in most cases. It doesn't have any long term consequences except of how you absorb it. If you absorb it and go, how dare they do that? They don't have the right to speak to me that way. And we just need to start to put these things back in the proper perspective because we have them way blown out of proportion. You know, silence is violence. We've gotten to the point where we moved on that words were violence, and now it's silence is violence. I mean, this is insane. No, violence is physically damaging things. Somebody yelling at you is not violence. Right. And, you know, it's interesting when you compare the the commandment for parents or excuse me for children of what they have to do to their parents and it is different the responsibility of the parents but the parents do have real responsibilities to their children like in second corinthians 12 paul uses it as an example so he's using it as an axiom as opposed to actually making it a command so second corinthians 12 14 and 15 now for the third time i am ready to come to you and will not be burdensome to you for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. And so Paul's using the example and going, this is what's natural. This is what's normal. And so the parent who goes, they don't, you know, they don't give me a card for Mother's Day, so therefore I, I should just cut them off. Well, that's, that is not natural. We have we should recognize that in our children, we have a duty to try to 
we have a responsibility to the society around us to, to continue to try to constrain our children's sin. And if what we do is we say, this child is just horrible, all they do is sin, so I'm just going to let them loose on society and cut them off, that's really not the righteous answer. Scripture also talks about, you know, parents not provoking their children to wrath, things like, I mean, you know, when you look at the obligations from parents to child and things like that, I mean, parents do have an obligation to live with their children according to knowledge, to not drive them to, you know, I mean, there are parents who needle their children and just, you know, I mean, and parents really need to consider those things. And the child who's on the receiving end of those, like you said, there's often where God has put them in a position where they need to learn to, to, to not take certain, I mean, one of the things I'll even talk to my children about sometimes is there are times where your mother and your father sin against you. And there's a part of it where you need to learn not to take our sin too seriously. There are times where we sin against you, and you need to step back and go, because it's very easy for children to worship their parents. Children, One of the reasons why it's easier for children to like obey other parents than their brothers and sisters is because they put their parents in a special category. Well, God put their parents in a special category, too. I understand that. But what I mean is, is they put them in a category in the sense of like they exalt them above even the position that God put them in. And then when they find out their parents have flaws, sometimes they drag them lower than they should. But there's this part of it where when a parent sins against a child, it's good for a child to learn as they're growing up that their parents are sinners. And that their parents' sin isn't isn't something that they have to like their parent speaks too rashly. They learn that their parents speak rashly sometimes. And that that isn't like they don't have to take their parents' words and stab them into their chest. There are times where they need to learn, I think my parents spoke too harshly to me there. I think my dad was I think my dad may have sinned against me. And they need to learn to forgive their parents. And that's a that is a real thing that is useful for people as they're growing up to be able to deal with that because it helps them understand that all these people, they're just pictures of God. They're not, they, and when they learn that early, it keeps them from falling apart whenever they realize their parents are sinners. And that falling apart, we're seeing all over the place right now. I mean, you know, just go on the internet and look at people who are deconstructing their faith, who are falling away and they're looking back at, at how either their parents or maybe it was a pastor or somebody sinned against them and, and so now you have all of these ex-evangelicals, that, and, and a lot of them are coming out of the homeschool movement who had this pedestal view of their parents who are sinners and don't deserve to be on a pedestal. Sometimes because of the sin of the parent, sometimes because of the sin of the child, right. sometimes because of—right? I mean, it's, it's, there's lots of sin to go around. I kind of said this before, but I want to repeat it, which is when you look at the obligation of a child to their parent— that is a much clearer obligation than the ongoing obligation to a, of a parent to a grown child. To a minor child, the obligation is very clear in law, right? I mean, you can't put your child out. You can't say this is a toxic relationship without great difficulty, right? Now you can. You can. There's ways to do it, but you basically have to turn them over to foster care and say, basically, I'm incompetent. I'm unable to handle this child. But you look, and so a lot of the cutting off happens afterwards. And there are, in that, you have a lot more freedom to do as a parent, in a sense, right? Because the obligation is much more after their raise, is much more from the child to the parent. And especially when you look at the society now where you have a lot of single mothers with boys that, that really treated them horribly and really abused them when they hit their teenage years, when they hit puberty is usually when they get to be really bad. And they were gang members and everything else. 
And there's a point where there, you know, there's a legitimate place for a woman to say, I don't need to be around this. And they're, they don't have the same obligation. It's important to recognize that, that it's not reciprocal the same way. The obligation of a parent to the child is not reciprocal to the obligation of the child to the parent. I mean, there, you know, it's like the banishment, you know, it's a, to, to banish someone from a country is a punishment for the parent to banish the child is a punishment for the child, you know, which is, you know, is, is appropriate, but for you know, the child can't really banish the parent in the same way, you know, except in extraordinary circumstances. Right. In the Bible, it actually is very clear that you can, you know, if you take a second wife that you can't disinherit the oldest son from the first wife, the hated wife, which means that there are other cases where you can disinherit and you have, you have uh, Jacob, he disinherits Reuben, he disinherits Levi, he disinherits Simeon. I mean, he disinherits them all and comes down to Judah and to Joseph, right? And so the idea that there is no place for disinheritance, that actually isn't a biblical case. There is a place for disinheritance, just like there is for excommunication, just like there is for, for, the, for the death penalty. Oh, is what I was thinking of. Okay. When you take it, the family, the state, and the sure. and the the church, you have the death penalty, and there is a place for it. But you should be taking it with that same level of seriousness. Right. That yes, there's a place for it, but you shouldn't just go, oh, they make me sad. Well, you're probably making the world sad by the child that you sent out into the world. You're, so maybe you should consider that too. You're saying that for a, in the relationship a parent has to a child, yes. for them to cut that child off like that is the equivalent of the state imposing a death penalty. Or the church excommunicating. Right. You know, that, that that a parent should think about it as being that serious. It's saying I'm taking them and removing them from my jurisdiction. Which doesn't mean that there's not an appropriate time to do it, but it is the absolute last action and should not be entered if, if into lightly. If your son lightly. sleeps with all your concubines, then you should probably do that. <laughs> Why did you go there? Why did you go there? <laughs> You're just trying to give the context. <laughs> you you. I don't have any concubines. <laughs> Do I need to say that? No, you don't need to say okay. that. Okay. It might be a good idea, but you don't need to. One of the other things is relationship between husbands and wives. And we did talk about, we did a recent episode that we posted on divorce, and we actually talked about some of this in that episode. But, I mean, we should touch on that here. Uh, 1 Corinthians seven ten through 14. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And so, I mean, in the episode, the other one we did, we just we kind of spent a lot of time talking about a lot of the detail in here. But I mean, there's a lot of people who want to say because because the relationship is is not a good relationship because we don't have a positive relationship, you should cut the you should divorce. And it's a toxic relationship, right? <laughs> Scripture pushes against that. Scripture says no. If the person's willing to live with you. You should dwell with them. And one of the things that really comes up in here is, is there's this part of it where people go, are they believing, are they not believing? This gets a little more complicated, but there's a part of it where if the person is acting in a way that's very much like a, not like a Christian, it doesn't mean that you can you have to treat them like they're a Christian and divorce them. It means you should go 
I don't have a reason to believe they're a believer, so I should treat them much more like an unbeliever. First John says, if you do not love the brother who you see, you do not love the God who you don't see. If you can't show love to the wife who you see, you don't love God. You're not a Christian. It's really that simple. I mean, we try to make it complicated, and it's not. So the people who go, well, they're a Christian, so I can divorce, that's ridiculous. Right. That's saying that there's no, that that, that spouse doesn't love you, but somehow that they're a Christian. Or, you know, it's just contradictory. It contradicts what it says in First Gen. And really the corollary here is, it goes back to what we've been saying when we said call the police, is the woman who's married with a husband who says he's a Christian and doesn't act like one, you should tell it to the church. Right. I mean, and the fact that the church doesn't do much about this today, that's a problem with the church. But in the end, the church should. The church should say, wait a minute, this person's not acting like a Christian. They should excommunicate him, make it very clear that he's not a believer, and then you can just continue to dwell with him in peace if he wants to stay. But, I mean, we act like somehow because they're a Christian, oh, now you can divorce that is not what Scripture says. That is not what it gives you the freedom to do. I, I mean, earlier we were talking about cases where it's really clear you need to call the police, and you're just saying, hey, there's cases where you need to call the church. Right. The right. church it, is the relevant the, authority in this situation right. you, when it comes well, to him being a— beating, but it's, it's that he's— he sits at, at night and watches pornography. Well, that's not beating. That's not something that the state's going to do, but something, the church should certainly do something about it. Right. And, and what you don't have, you don't have the, op- the option to either do nothing or the option to self-excommunicate. Those aren't in play. It's The right option is you need to appeal to the appropriate authorities. Right. And too often I think that that's used now as an excuse of, oh, they're not making me who I can be and all these other things as opposed to going, no, God is actually really clear. The point is marriage matters. And I mean, it's it's really interesting because when you look at what, what Christ was talking to Peter, right? And Peter goes that, you know, so when can a man divorce a, wife, a woman? And, and Christ goes, in the case of adultery, that's the only time, basically. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But and then Peter goes, then who would get married? And so the idea of toxic relationships now, well, no, people understood that before. They had that same idea. When Peter says that I can't divorce my wife for any reason, he's going, well, but if the if the relationship doesn't benefit me, of course I should be able to. Otherwise, who would ever get married? Right. And so when we think of these things as new, they're very old. We right. shouldn't think of them as new. And Christ came and said, no, that is not how it's supposed to work. So you can't even make the argument of, well, this language is here, but it didn't cover it. No, actually, Christ covers it really clearly in Matthew 18. So what are the kinds of cases where we would want to consider cutting the relationship off, ending the relationship? I mean, we've we've worked really hard about pushing against the way the culture is enabling you to just at your own whim and for your own selfish reasons end a relationship what kinds of cases would we consider would be legitimate biblical cases for ending the relationship? Well, the first thing that we need to recognize is that there are relationships that God established, and those have obligations that are continuing. Your spouse, your parents, your children, those obligations continue, and you can't just go, I'm going to arbitrarily cut them off. But your friends, if your friends are causing you to sin, you don't have to go, I need to keep these friends. There's times where you go, well, when I get together with my friends, I get drunk. Well, stop getting together with your friends. And the problem is not that 
it's a toxic relationship with the, your friends. It's that they tempt you to sin and you're not resisting the sin and you should flee from the sin. You should flee from the temptation. But it's still the mindset has to be, I need to deal with my sin, not it's somehow the relationship is some generic thing that's sitting out there. It's I need to deal with my sin and I can't, and I'm not resisting temptation with I'm, when I'm with them. I act like a fool when I'm with them. Well, stop being with them. And what we need to do is not hold relationships that were established and by choice established by us and holding them up and saying, oh, I must maintain this relationship. No, you don't have an obligation to except the ones that God established. And 2 Timothy 2 is pretty clear about this in verses 21 through 26. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So you have a pretty, some pretty clear categories there of, of things that you're supposed to be avoiding, you know, situations that are, you know, causing youthful lust, situations that are involving, you know, disputes, uh, useless disputes. You know, those are things you're supposed to flee from. And if that means, you know, losing these man-made relationships, so be it. I'm going to think about people who aren't good for each other with friends and things like that. One of the things I frequently think of is young men who are foolish with each, you know, they're foolish around each other. And often one of the ways you can deal with that is by putting constraints in your relationship. You know what I mean? Like two young men who goof off, uh, they see each other on Sunday and they're being foolish. Go sit with some older men. You know what I mean? And it it doesn't even mean you have to destroy your relationship. In fact, by being around other men, you can be discipled and you may actually be able to mature together and your friendship may actually become a useful friendship. And like it's talking in here, even like by by doing these things, by cleansing yourself in a way, you can be made into a thing where you can be useful, where you can become something that's profitable. And I mean, so there's this part of it where, I mean, this isn't things that people are always going, but just when people react to this, they'll go, so you're saying you should cut off anybody who ever causes you any difficulty? No, that's not what we're saying is you need to be able to think about these things and apply scripture. And when you think about kind of the advice we were giving to use that term for like, if you're have to honor your father, but he's abusive towards your, your wife that maybe you go alone and you put constraints on relationships. Right. And it's just that in a friend relationship, there isn't as much requirement to keep it. You can just go the right constraint is just to not get together with them anymore. Right. As opposed to, you know, but especially in some things we don't hold up as, as serious as God does. For instance, if you're arguing with the person every time you get together with them, stop getting together with them. I mean, if you're actually arguing about Scripture and growing and you're, you know, you're testing each other and trying each other and trying to move forward and you're actually moving forward. Right. But if it's a vain dispute where you're just arguing for the sake of arguing, which a lot of young men, when they get together, they argue and they just argue. Right. And they never get anywhere. Well, God's saying that's not what a Christian looks like. And so don't get in that situation. And so, yeah, you can put in constraints where you go, well, if, if uh, you know, other friends are around us, then we're not going to have that argument. So then that's fine. 
But if you can't, you also we just need to recognize that these relationships, they don't have that intrinsic value. The question is, are they growing you closer to Christ? Are they growing you more in obedience to Christ or not? Right. But at the same time, if if that is the appropriate response for you to get out of that relationship, you also need to recognize you have a particular weakness, you have some sin that needs to be dealt with, and maybe the best way to deal with it is far away from that person. But the problem but don't was, just pretend the, like it's the with problem that was yes. not the relationship. The problem is still at least in part yours, and you've got to own it. and You've got to deal with it. And yeah, and or I it's think going to follow you around, and you're going to do, you're going to have to deal with it again. And it might be your wife the next time. And kind of the the example that Charles used before is that if you're a young man in that situation, go be with older men. Well, don't just be there with the older man and go. Okay, now I don't have to fight. Be there with the older man and go. So how does he respond? I need to learn how to do this so I can turn from my sin. Another verse that bears on this is Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. I mean, you have the warning there that, you know, even if you if even if you might think you're going to be safe, even if you even if you're not currently getting angry because you're going with the angry man, but you need to be. You know, you need to be careful because you become like those who you're around and you 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 need to watch out that you're going to learn his ways. So there's a you know, there's a point to, you know, just if you see that this person you're with is is sinning. And even if you don't, you know, you don't you're not sinning with them. But if you're not able to lead them away from that, perhaps that's not a friendship for you because you're you're going to be learning their ways and you're not able to to turn them from their sin. I mean, there's any number of cases we could have gone to in Proverbs that would have been good examples of cut this relationship off, cut this relationship off. Like, like you have no business being friends with a harlot. Don't even, if you, if you're walking down the street where she lives, you're an idiot. This is what Solomon's saying. So, you know, there's so many. Is that a paraphrase? That is, that is a paraphrase, (laughs) but it's, but it's like, I looked out my window and I saw a young man lacking sense. He's an idiot. Right. I mean, one of the other, th- I mean, the way you can read this verse that you just read is often the person who's telling you to cut people off is this person that should potentially be cut off because they're an angry person frequently. They're a pr- I, cut, I got tired of putting up with my parents' stuff and I've cut them off. You should cut them off. I mean, sometimes that's the person you right. should cut off is the person who's giving you this advice because so often this advice just travels in waves. It really does. Someone has Someone has sinned. And they want to encourage other people to sin in the same way they have. And Scripture even tells us and warns us about them. You're saying you need to cut off your therapist? <laughs> I already did. His prices went up. But one thing is it's important to recognize it says make no friendship with an angry man, right? Because it doesn't mean necessarily that you can't have any interaction with him because you should be calling him to repentance, right? And it's and if you call him to repentance, you won't be friends with an angry man, <laughs> But but I mean that's just not an not angry man's response. <laughs> but but when we think about it, right, it's it's important. Like we're back to the boundaries, right? I mean, this is actually setting a boundary. It's not saying don't talk to an angry man. It may it says don't be friends with an angry man. Don't deceive yourself. If you're friends friends with an angry man, you will become an angry man. You'll learn his ways. Right. But yet, it doesn't mean that you can't can't deal with them. That you can't confront them in sin. That you can't. Right. I mean, you can still treat them like a human being, but you need to recognize that 
that that relationship before you enter into it, if it's going to foster sin in you because you're going to become an angry man, don't do it. Right. We all have people who were acquaintances that we talk to a few times a year or we talk to for a few minutes here and there. That would not fall under the stat category of being friends with I mean, if, if they were right. an angry person, I don't think you'd be in violation of that of that verse. And so, I mean, it's these are... These have real context to them. And the reason I said, you know, when we use the lang- the term cut off, it sounds like it's a permanent thing. And there's a lot of times where you're cutting them off as a friend, which doesn't mean that you cut them off and never talk to them, never have any interaction with them. Right. You know, the, the Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so there's a point of saying, well, do I keep company with somebody that's going to lead me astray or convince me that it's okay to be led astray because it's still your sin. You're not assigning the sin to the other person. It's important to recognize that that, that also means there's a big difference between saying hi to them or having an occasional conversation with them and going out and hanging out with them and spending a lot of time with them. The one is going to be destructive and the other doesn't necessarily need to be as destructive. And so when we think about the relationships we should always be thinking about them from how, what does this do to my sin? Is it going to grow it or is it going to kill it? And if it's growing it, you shouldn't do it. And I think that's useful distinction because there's a part of it where when you take this thought back to things about parents and things, the primary nature of a father son relationship is not friendship. Right. And so, I mean, there's a part of it where sometimes what you what you lose with your father is the ability to, because there is, a, there can be friendship with your father but that's not a so you can lose the ability to be friends with your father but it doesn't remove the obligation to show honor and so i mean so you can lose a part of a relationship without right. without saying i'm going to lose the totality of it and saying i ha- i'm i that i can force the losing of the totality of it and i think that's that's useful to kind of consider you know one of the things you were talking about just a moment ago was tar- about how being in this kind of a relationship can foster your sin and realize how far removed we are now getting to that point than starting by talking about toxic relationships where you've externalized the problems, you've put them on the relationship, you've pushed them onto the other person. Now you're saying, hey, maybe there really is something wrong with me interacting with this person, but at least part of what's wrong is I'm a sinner and and this relationship is enabling my sin, it's fostering my sin, it's feeding my sin. Okay, in that kind of case, it's it's worth getting out of. Right, and the writer of Proverbs can say, you have the sin even if you're not manifesting it. You can be the most calm, peaceful person, but if you go hang out with an angry man, you're going to learn his ways. <laughs> There's a good chance you'll learn his ways. So it it's not even necessary that you see the sin and that it's going to do it. You're supposed to look ahead and say, hey, th- this could feed a sin that I'm not even struggling with right now. I mean, I I mentioned before that the fundamental nature of a father-son relationship isn't friendship, and I think it might be shocking to people that the fundamental nature of a husband-wife relationship is not fundamentally friendship either. There can be there absolutely can be friendships, but you can be married to somebody who you are not friends with, and that can still be a significant aspect of the marriage. There have been many marriages down through history that have functioned in that way, and so I mean, I think it's a part of it where we have this sort of like the self-help view is we've skewed. We've skewed so many things that we believe the fundamental nature of them is is X, when in reality God says, no, it's something else entirely. And since, you know, in this episode we've done something that we haven't done in any other episode I, that I can recall, which is we haven't blamed the church yet. So we have to throw in some blame for the church. 
Because in the church, people think that members are supposed to be friends with one another. And that's not the fundamental nature of of membership in a church either. Fundamental nature of, of membership in a church is that we need one another. We're multiple parts of the same body. And is it good to have friendship? Sure. Should we love one another? Absolutely. But it it's we want to look towards having this good feeling and this feeling of friendship towards one another rather than the other important aspects of, of loving one another that isn't just a, a friendly feeling towards one another. I mean, the fundamental relationship is brothers and sisters. Right. And so— Which is not—which frequently is not friendly. But that's— <laughs> I mean, in human but relationships. It, but that should be what it's aiming towards. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's not necessarily what it is. And it's not what you—and you don't—and you don't, what you don't do is you don't say, oh, we're not friends right now, therefore— Let's let's cut it off. It's it's hey, you know, you're not friends right now, but you are brothers and sisters. So you need to work out your differences. And how many church splits have happened over ridiculous things? Like I know one that happened over some group wanted red pews and some group wanted blue pews. I mean, and these things happen. And really, the underlying thing that causes that to happen in a church is usually that two groups are looking and saying we have to be friends with the other group, and so they split into two groups of friends and they they both go their separate ways and then they end up splitting over colors of pews and a lot of times it comes back to they don't understand the fundamental nature of of it's not about that I like this person it's not about that I want to be around this person it's about God put a group of people together because each one needs things from the other other people. I mean, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, right? Is that he's put together the right group of people, given the right giftings for the work that that church is supposed to do. And we all need each other. And so so the church, I think, a lot of times has already started and has embraced the idea of toxic relationships, not using that term way before the society did. The society is just embracing what was has been accepted in the church for a long time. Because in the end, what we've really said is what's relational about us is our friendships, as opposed to what's relational about us is the work of Jesus Christ, is the work that God has called us to. It's that that God the Father adopted us and that we're all sons of God and daughters of God, so therefore we're brothers and sisters. And, and we've lost that families are about are about a work as well. You know, I mean, we've lost right. I mean, so we've lost all those concepts, and we've rooted them in something else. Not that the thing that we value isn't valued. Not that friendship isn't it useful, is valuable. but it's not the primary thing. It's not the focus of the thing. It's a byproduct of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a byproduct of God's grace and mercy. So as we talk about toxic relationships, it's really important to to internalize it and go, where is my sin in this relationship? Am I doing what God would have me to do? It's so easy to set ourselves up on a pedestal and say, everybody should be worshiping me like I worship me. And Christianity is about dying to yourself, about being knocked off that pedestal, about putting Christ there and saying, how can I serve you, Lord, instead of how can we serve ourselves? So much of the mental health stuff is related about is related to us feeling good about ourselves instead of actually serving God. Christ saved us so that we could die to ourselves and so that we could live for him. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.